everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan, usually. Today, however, we're doing a special bonus episode of the podcast, the series finale, a little premature there, the season finale of Watchmen aired last night on HBO. I broke down the season premiere back in October with John Stanko. We are getting back together today to recap the finale, the season as a whole, and look ahead to what a potential season two of Watchmen could look like. does not sound like it's coming for a while, but this is a great piece of television. It warranted a full recap. That's coming up right after this. We are back here on the Just and the Suffering podcast. It is time to talk some Watchmen season finale coverage. We talked Watchmen back in October. We covered the premiere with John Stanko, so it's fitting. We got John Stanko back for the finale. John, welcome back. How are you? I'm so excited to be back, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. That was such a season. I can't so happy right now. I mean, the season was unbelievable, and the thing is, it got better and better as it went on. The beginning of the season was very good, and by the end, it was unbelievable. So many iconic moments, and credit to David Lindelhoff and his entire staff and crew who put this together. One of the best episodes, one of the best seasons of TV this entire year. Yeah, absolutely. Great job by Dan Lindelhoff. And I know he gets crap for like how he couldn't really bring Lost home, but he had this thing all planned out perfectly. It's all tied in a nice bow. I mean, if we don't get any more watching, which is a possibility— I think you're very satisfied what you got. Oh, I think so. I think the finale was a, like you said, a perfect tying of the bow on this story. It had just the right amount of weird. Uh, it had just the right amount of visual splendor that has been throughout this entire show. The performances were riveting. Um, and it was it really was a perfect bow. And they brought everything together, even from the moons of Jupiter. They brought everything back to Tulsa into that small little one-block area, five-block area, actually, technically. Um, and it, tie, it tied all the bows together. Uh, no, there, The thing is, Mike... I love that there are loose ends because it allows people to think about what could possibly happen, but there's just enough where you get some closure, but also you're wondering what could happen in the future. Indeed you are, and we give you enough of a warning here. We're going to throw the spoiler sound up there. If you have not finished watching Watchmen, get out, go watch the season, come back. If you don't care about being spoiled, you can hang out and listen to me and John just spoil the hell out of this for you. Absolutely. There is no way to talk about Watchmen without spoiling it. Yes, so obviously we have a lot of different ways we can go here. I think I think you I think you agree, but I think the most efficient way to do it is to kind of go by character here and figure where they ended up. You're the boss, man. You tell me where to go. I yeah. follow your lead. So let's go character by character here, sort of look at this here. I mean, let's go with uh we we'll start with uh the one guy who did not survive the finale. The one guy, because there was another person who did not survive. We'll start with Cal, a.k.a. Dr. Manhattan. So what a twist that was that this season, just to have him just hidden in plain sight from the jump. Yeah, hidden in plain sight, and I think 
what rewatching the season if you're going to I think the most remarkable thing is if you rewatch the start of this season you're going to see Cal is kind of like he doesn't have a lot of energy he's very sullen he doesn't have a lot of religious beliefs and stuff like that and you notice that in the first four episodes and then it gets going and going and then by the end of season of episode seven when you realize the big twist when he is Dr. Manhattan it all clicks into place and then the last two episodes the thing I love about the penultimate episode, Mike, is that it gave him all the exposition you needed for Dr. Manhattan getting to the point of, in, of the present, where we are now in the story, and then the finale was a great conclusion to his story and to the Dr. Manhattan ethos, if you will. So, fantastic job with the Dr. Manhattan character arc and keeping him hidden in plain sight and then somehow cramming so much exciting stuff in the last two episodes that gave you a full character download of him. Yeah, I think it was great. I loved the eighth episode, which was, I think, because I noticed this is a p- pattern he did back in Lost, where he basically has this big ensemble cast, and then each episode sort of is about one main character is the focus of it. Like, mm-hmm. episode eight was the Dr. Manhattan episode, and basically they ha- frame this whole thing around his first meeting with Angela in in a bar in, in Vietnam. I love the title there. It's such a good pun title. Uh, yeah, a great pun title. So he t- talks about this. They go in there. They have this meeting, and then they show him basically – it skips through time, sort of like how his mind does it, how he experiences time, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah, everything is in the present. He's see, he's experiencing everything at once, uh, and it's just so good. That episode eight is probably – it's a tie for the best episode of the season in my mind. The writing was superb. It's so hard to write about time travel and understanding all of it and, and putting everything together where it makes comprehensive sense to the audience. And they did a really good job in this episode, making it so the audience can understand – the deep meaning of Dr. Manhattan and everything he experienced and goes through. Um, just unbelievable writing, and I think uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen did a fantastic job as Cal Abar, uh, Dr. Manhattan, especially in Episode 8. Yeah, it also is interesting because it gets you this whole point where, like, he obviously, you know, as a character, he's not very, like, creative, very, like... He, they literally say he has no imagination. That's yep. literally a line from yep. the episode. It's interesting, too, because, like, he knows his whole time. It's like, I'm going to die. Like, he knows I'm going to die. And then, like, he knows that he does. He chooses not to prevent it. He, like, says, accepts his fate and sort of, like, tries to find a way around, find a way to pass his powers on. We'll get to that in a bit. But, like, what do you think of his choice to sort of just like, accept what was happening and try and, you know, sort of put himself in a position where, like, he's controlling where the power is going as opposed to having it taken from him. Yeah, can you imagine having the pressure to change everything, but knowing what the future is going to be, you have to go through the motions of stuff that you might not enjoy. Yeah. Um, now, the thing is that what made it easier for Dr. Manhattan is that he found love and he found enjoyment in going through those mundane steps to get to that final endpoint, which he knew was going to be really bad. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like a saving grace to his story because otherwise it'd be incredibly tragic but if it wasn't for his relationship with Abar um, it, it'd be really really sad yeah. but the, the two match perfectly well together um, and it's really fan- phenomenal job of bringing this story all the way to the end and Everything that he has to go through, he doesn't want to change the future because he wants to experience everything as he can, as human as possible. And in the end, you feel for him as if he's a human and the pain that he has to go through. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, how, like, when he has the conversation with Angela in the bar in episode eight, and she's like, he's like, I'm in love with you. He's like, but she's like, when did you fall in love? He's like, 
I haven't experienced it yet. That was a perfect like sort of encapsulation of like the Dr. Manhattan conundrum of like he knows he's going to. He doesn't see how yet. He hasn't gone through the experience of doing it yet. Yeah, and then the moment when you get to the experience of him falling in love with her, it was when he says, this is the moment. This is the moment when I fell in love with you. She's trying to save him when there's absolutely no chance of him being saved from the 7th Cavalry. That was a profound moment because you just see him standing in the kitchen and just being like, this is the moment. And it's kind of that moment where in real life, if you're if you are falling in love with the person, you have that moment when it clicks going, holy crap, this is real. People have that moment where they're like, oh, my God, is this real life? And I think you kind of saw that as an expression there. Yeah. And he also ties the most to the Adrian Veidt storyline because we finally learned episode eight, like how he how the Adrian Veidt storyline is connected because Veidt has been on Europa, the moon of Jupiter that. Dr. Manhattan like built the life on, put the clones on based on the mm-hmm. Lord and Lady of the Manor that like, he met when he was a kid. He saw them having sex and and was just so like inspired by them because he has no idea how to create life on his own. They said, create something beautiful. His response was, I'll make you guys. You're my base for everything. Yeah, so that, again, it's I was surprised when that came up because usually when that happens in a movie or TV show, it's a scolding. Yeah. But these two are the real-life versions, if you will, of Phillips and Crookshanks uh, taught him love and taught him that this is something beautiful and that you should create something beautiful on your own. Yeah. Uh, so he did that, all right, on Europa. But the thing is, it also ties into the fact that he has no imagination because he literally created something based off something he already experienced. Yeah. So it ties into also what Veidt says about him a little bit. So it all comes full circle there. Um, it, it also explains everything that you need to know about the, the robotic Phillips and Crookshanks on that Europa planet. We were wondering, why is it only these two people? Why are they growing in a lake? What is the reason for this? And you got all that with the hurried exposition that was so well done in episode eight. Yeah, and it explains a lot of the Vite storyline because Vite basically – He's whining to Dr. Manhattan about how, like, I saved the world. No one appreciates me for it. And he's like, I'll send you somewhere where you'll be a, well, you'll be like, you'll a be god. a god. Yeah. Be a god. And he gets sent to your open. And then he gets there. He's like, oh, buyer's remorse. I want out. And yeah. he's, he's stuck there because, until you find out later on that Lady True sends a ship to go rescue him. So he's basically killing time the entire time. Each year, each episode is basically a year in Adrian Veidt's life on Europa. And he makes this whole story for himself. If you listen to the official watching podcast, I know you have people who have mm-hmm. not. Dave Lindelof discusses this. He basically says, hey, the play he's talking about in episode two, it's not the watchmaker's son that he has them perform in episode two. It's this whole thing about him going on trial, going in prison for a while, and then getting out. And I think that was an interesting way for Vite to sort of kill his time. Yeah, the thing is he created, he tried to create a worthy adversary, right? That's literally why he created uh, the, I'm forgetting his the game name. Warden. The Game Warden, yeah. And he gave him a mask. And I love the line, uh, I think it was in the season finale of, um, was he a worthy adversary? And he just says, no, but you put on a good show. The disappointment in the uh, Mr. Phillips' face yeah. when he says that is so heartbreaking, but it's also so Adrian Veidt yeah. because nobody can live up to him. Nobody can live up to his reputation. Though we may see, somebody may have lived up to him as the, as the final episode progressed. Yeah, I also want to point out another example of playing hiding in plain sight. When we see Lady True's uh, clock tower the first time, episode four, we see the statue of Adrian Veidt. Oh, that's pretty cool. You realize that's actually Adrian Veidt. That is frozen. actually <laughs> Adrian Veidt, yeah. Absolutely. They carbonite. They yeah. took from Star Wars. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that shocked me when that happened. That was honestly probably the most shocking moment of the finale when you saw the gold immediately just go into Vite's face in the spaceship and you're like, oh my God, right away you knew yeah. that something fishy was happening. And then she just unveils him from that bondage yeah. right an hour before she thinks she's going to theoretically take over the most powerful being and entity in the world just to kind of rub it in his face and say, hey, daddy, look what I did without your help. Yeah, Lady True being his daughter, also a 
and the ultimate big bad of the season. I thought it was a fun plot twist. Yeah, it was a fun plot twist. I think people can kind of guess that there was something kind of shady about her. She wasn't all necessarily good, if yeah. you will. But I think Vite knew it most because only a sociopath can really connect with another sociopath. And he knew right away going, this woman cannot have this power because it takes one to know one. He yeah. says that in the season finale. Um, and, and it came to fruition. Yeah, that was a great point. Because, like, at one point in the battle, like, after Sandra Keen's guts explode, he becomes a pile of black goo on the floor. You got to filter out that atomic energy. You yeah. have to. You have to. I, you have to filter it out. <laughs> you see what Come happens. On, everyone knows that. Yeah. I love that she drops that wine delivery, too. It's yeah. so great. It's like everyone knows you have to filter the energy before you try and put it in your own body. Yeah. But also, I love the speech from Senator Keen when he's just monologuing to the 7th Cavalry. Just You could tell he's laying on the comedy with it. He's yeah. going as, as absurd as possible. He's wearing the old Dr. Manhattan panties that yeah. – uh, that uh, Lori Blake says that he's wearing, and it's really just full gung-ho into the comedic aspect of that monologue, which all ends up with him literally in a pile of blood. Yeah, it was that was fun. And anyway, this is a fun fact of Dr. Manhattan's last like, bit of his power, that he uses his power. He touches the blood and uses it to teleport uh, Vite, Lori Blake, and Looking Glass, so he forgot about for four episodes. He mm-hmm. was, when the cavalry went to his house in episode five, apparently he slaughtered all that went undercover with the, yep. with the cavalry. And then they go to Antarctica as a Vite secret base where Vite uses the frozen squid attack to stop Lady True from becoming the new Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, as he said, they would come down from the sky like a, uh, like a gauntlet gun, right? Yeah. Like a machine gun. And I tell you, I paused the episode when this shot came up and it was of Lady True's hand with a hole through it, which it's exactly like the crucifixion, right? Yeah. She's going to be like a Jesus Christ figure coming to save everyone, but no, she's going to be pummeled by a spaceship with frozen shrimp taking her down. Yeah. And that's the final like kind of shot after there was so much religious overtones with her standing in that circle of silver with the her in focus, but the cross uh, out of focus in the different side of the frame, kind of the symmetry there. Yeah. And then to have that symbolism of the hole in the hand like Jesus had, but only to have her entire sacrifice uh, mean absolutely nothing. Um, just unbelievable filmmaking and shot selection for that sequence for Lady True's death. I freaking loved it. Paused it when she held up that hand with the hole. I was like, this is gold. Yeah, it was gold. And before we get back to Lady True, we'll finish up the Vite plot there because Vite basically says, I thought the grandery was great about how, like, when he says we have to stop her, it's like no one should want that much power and, and nobody wants it for, for altruistic reasons. They want it for themselves. And mm-hmm. it's a great point. He he would know. Like he is the one who said, you know what, I want to use a giant squid to kill three million people to prevent nuclear war. So like he would understand the motivation behind like, oh, this is not just me being altruistic, it's me trying to say something for myself. Yeah, and I think again, it's his I think he also loves the idea because it's his chance to save the world again, right? And he you can kind of see the gleeful nature that which he's going about his plan to save the world at the end of the episode when he's programming the shrimp and getting all the buttons and the setting the temperature and everything. And at the end, when he says Blake and Looking Glass off into with Archie, the old uh, owlman ship. Thinking, all right, I'm done now. I saved the world again. Adios. Yeah. And Lori Blake's like, no, you have to pay for your consequences. He's like, no, I saved the world again. Have mm-hmm. some like empathy, like uh, like have some respect. Yeah, have some respect. Exactly, that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Like, have some appreciation for what I've done. I mean, granted, Looking Glass is not having it. Clunk. Yeah, he talks too much, and that he does. Uh, but again, the thing I mentioned earlier, he's one of those loose ends. We don't know what what exactly happens to him when he gets put into Archie and gets brought back to Washington D.C. and put in front of the FBI, right? But it's a a loose end that we love to think about yeah. is that what's going to happen to him. Yeah, that's one of the loose ends that could 
I think that's probably the second biggest loose end. Of, like, what would be interesting to watch in that Watchmen season two? Is like, what would happen with that information about the fact that nobody really knows, aside from like the people like in the FBI inner circle, that he's actually the one who did the squid attack, not some extra. Well, the thing is, I don't even think all the FBI knows, right? It's like it's an inner circle of the FBI. I think like Lori Blake and like some of her higher ups know. I don't even think Agent P knows. No, I. So this is I. I honestly think only Blake knows. Yeah. Uh, because she was obviously just there with the Watchmen, right, during her time, so she knows the whole entire backstory. Um, I don't think the FBI knows as a whole. Yeah, I think it's only her. I think she's been holding that secret. Yeah, even that makes it even more interesting because then you have this big trial in the world where this myth that you've been going on for twenty five years is a lie. Exactly. Is mm-hmm. everything gonna get put out when Lori Blake says, "Oh, by the way, here's Adrian Biden. By the way, here's everything I knew as well." She's gonna kind of commit herself to that punishment that she's gonna have to have for holding that secret for so long. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. Loose ends. Love it. I love thinking about it. Yeah, that's a great loose end there. We'll go to Lady True next. And, I mean, we get the reveal at the beginning that, I mean, she had such an interesting rise at character this year between buying the farm in her first appearance in episode four, which we find out later on basically is that's because where the ship is going to land for mm-hmm. Adrian Vite. That's where he crash lands. And she needs that farm land to get him. And then we have the whole idea of her clone of her cloning her mother and raising her and her daughter. And then... The fact that she's lady, that she's Adrian Veidt's uh, daughter, and she's the mastermind of everything. She's manipulating the Seventh Cavalry to do her dirty work and get Manhattan for her. I think that's it. And then see it all come crashing down. Interesting arc. For Literally her. all come crashing down yeah. right on top of her. Right. Yep. Um. Yeah. She is the worthy adversary of this entire season. Right. She's the worthy adversary for Adrian Veidt. Because she has the smarts, because she literally has his genes in her, because she's his daughter. And that scene when they talk in an article for the first time, and the first time they meet, and he refuses to call her daughter. Vite though pulls the string and gets back to Earth by spelling out daughter on the moon. We saw that. It was only, we saw... Save me D. Save me D, right? You didn't know what the rest of it was. But now we find out. Does he really mean daughter? Does he really feel bad about not respecting her? No, I don't think so. I think he just wanted to get back home, and he knew how to pull the strings. Because I think uh, hubris was the main weakness for Lady True. She thought she was smarter than she really was, and she couldn't predict the unpredictable. Yeah, that's true. And like I self, I'm so funny. I loved how they did the save me D. Because the first thing, oh, is he saying save me Doctor Manhattan? Exactly. That's what everyone thought, right? Yeah. That's what everyone had to think. Yeah, and it's not it's save me daughter, and like. And I love too when she introduced herself. It's like, hi, I'm sample two three four six. Yeah, <laughs> sample also, two three also, four you, six. You call me true. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was that was great. And her arc, like obviously over the course of the series, like she was sort of like this, the sheep and wolf's like wolf and sheep's clothing because like she's like she's the one who helps Angela like recover from the nostalgia mm-hmm. treatment. She's aligned with uh, her grandfather for a little bit. She works with Lori Blake for a little bit. There's like. She just sets herself up in this spot where she, you think you can trust her, and at the end, she's like, I'm the mastermind. Yeah, no, she's the mastermind. She's the kind of the person, she's like the Adrian Veidt of the graphic novel, where in the end, he's the one who has his fingers in all the different holes and really pulling all the different strings, making sure everything is going the way that they want it. Um, and, and she does that miraculously. Like she says, she had to let the 7th Cavalry capture Dr. Manhattan so Dr. Manhattan wouldn't see that she was the one who was going to eventually steal his power. She had to play to that and let it roll out. Um, and she does a great job. Again, she's super duper smart. She played the Adrian Vite card really well. Uh, just uh, eventually, Doctor Manhattan just kind of came out on top with his uh, with his emotions and transporting the people back to Antarctica. Yeah, let's let's go to the next character, the person she worked with before, Will Reeves, who 
had a quiet finale. He was definitely really there at the end, but like he did a lot of the lifting early in the, in the middle part of this series, as keep driving the story forward. Yeah, I mean, he maybe had a quiet part in the season finale, Mike, but he had the best line of the season finale. Yeah. Do you do you know what line I'm talking about? Do you have a guess? Yes, the line about the wounds need air. Yeah, you can't heal under a mask. Wounds need air. What profound writing, touching on not only uh, Angela Abar, her character. Uh, and the wounds that she has uh, with losing her husband, losing the love of her life, um, but also just touching on the theme of masks and stuff like that. It unbelievable writing and the most profound line of maybe the entire show is in that final season and in that final is in the final episode. Will Reese delivers it. Uh, couldn't be also said that it's also said in the same movie theater that we opened up the show in as well. So you kind of got the start of Will Reeves, the start of how he got in his journey and how he became a lawman, how he became Hooded Justice, the inspiration for that, and then the ending of giving someone else maybe inspiration to better themselves, her giving him giving that advice to Abar. Yeah, his his episode, like his flashback episode, episode six, the one the I best that, episode of the season. I think it might be the best episode on television this year. Unreal. Yeah. So, so, so good. The best directing of a TV show I've seen this year. Um, I mean, speaking for myself, that POV shot of him getting strung up into the tree and he's just staring down at the three policemen, uh, it's haunting. It's terrifying to, to look at and to feel. you feeling through him and then it drops down and it's A-bar on the ground you see getting up and he knows that she's experienced the same thing that he did, that same fear. Um, the unbelievable directing and storytelling. That it was my favorite episode of the season by far. I mean, they finished really strong. I feel like the low point of the season probably the Looking Glass episode because I feel like Apart from his flashback, and like that was another loss, and he like, he loved using the flashbacks, Dan Lindelof, in terms of, like exposing everybody's sort of mm-hmm. backstories that way. And I loved how every, like I said at the beginning, everyone sort of had their own episode. Like five was Looking Glass, six was Will Reeves, seven was Angela's backstory, eight was Manhattan's, and then nine sort of wrapped everything up. But like, I love that aspect of it, and like the Will Reeves story, I think was just so well done, and the fact that we got this whole picture perfect, this whole like. I was going to say picture perfect because, like, obviously he has a lifetime of things he regrets. But, like, mm-hmm. the ending for him is, like, great because he's starting to accept what he did. He's trying to help his granddaughter out and say, hey, like, I've been there. Like, you need to accept the fact of what you are not hide behind the mask and, like, let yourself, like, experience pain and grow from it. I think that was a great uh, sort of speech from him. Yeah, and I think you have to imagine how happy he feels when Abar even offers for him to stay at her house for just a couple days. Yeah. She makes that clear. Only a couple days, but he gladly accepts it. And he's also, frankly, still the hammer of truth because he's talking about uh, Dr. Manhattan and he's talking to Abar after and he says he was a great man, but for everything he gone, he could have done more. Something like that. It, he's still speaking truth about the people that Abar cares about, but I think she's come to respect that. Yeah, I think that's sort of a take that he and True wrote the line that, that uh, Dr. Manhattan could have done more with his powers because, like, Lady True at the beginning of the finale talks to Adrian Vice says, like, if I had his powers, I would get rid of all the nuclear weapons, I would, like, end world hunger, I would make this a much better place to live in. And, like, Will Reese says, like, Dr. Manhattan could have done so much more to, like, fight injustice than he does and just poses going and hiding on Jupiter for, like, 10 years. Yeah, but, the, I mean, so this is. A crazy analogy, but you have all that power, right? Yeah. Like, it's got to be stressful, right? We saw that happen with a movie as silly as Bruce Almighty. He yeah. had all the powers. He wanted to be God, but then he got to working with all that power, and he's like, this is stressful. I don't want to do it. So you pick and choose your battles, right? Yeah. I think that's the same thing Dr. Manhattan did, is he kind of went through the motions, did the things he needed to, did things he was told, but didn't want to take that mode because there was so much stress, so much built upon him already. Why add on more to it? Yes, indeed. And we'll... Right out the character section here, we'll talk about Angela, who had quite the ride through this series. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Regina King knocked it out of the park. Um, she was un. I say unbelievable too much. I need to switch up my word choice, but she was really fantastic. Um, and by the end of her story, I think we we get to know her really. Her first introduction is wearing the mask and kicking ass and taking bad guys and and kind of having her earth shattered when the sheriff is killed. But by the end, there's no way she's going to be wearing a mask ever again because she's dealt with so much. She's dealt with so much anxiety. She can't hide behind anything anymore. She needs to learn from it. Um, and I think she, her arc and the way she went through the entire story of protecting people but also kind of protecting herself from everything around her, I think by the end she's kind of an open wound, if you will, and the air is going to let her heal, uh, to, to quote Real Reeves. And just a fantastic job by Regina King. Yeah, interesting a note with her. I'm, I know you listened to the official watching podcast, the last episode, Dana mm-hmm. Lindoff did. And one thing you pointed out was interesting, I did not realize this before, is that like after episode four, she is not in the full Sister Night costume. The no, I have time. this in my notes. I Credit to myself. Yeah. I wrote down that she wears the mask much less over the second half of the episode compared to the first half, and that shows her growth as a character. So I caught on Lindelof. I caught on to it. I was happy about that. But it's awesome. It's a great choice, right? It's a great choice realizing uh, that she doesn't need to wear the disguise in the costume anymore. Yeah, it's a great, great choice. We see her grow as a character a lot. At the end, she has a choice to make because back in episode eight, she asked Dr. Manhattan to prove that he's Dr. Manhattan, and she says, like, and he basically pulls an egg out of his out of his pocket here, mm-hmm. out of his hand. He makes one appear out of thin air, and she's like, you couldn't just teleport me to Mars or something? And he's like, no, I want, I can create life. I put my powers in this egg. Therefore, if anybody eats this egg, they can get my abilities. So at the end, we have the scene in episode seven or eight, when she, when she after the Manhattan flashback gets to the present, when he's making the egg, she smashes the cart on the floor, but one has survived, and she realizes his power is in the egg. She eats the egg. And then at the end, we get the great, like, tease of, like, is she going to be able to walk on water? We get the foot dipping towards the pool, then we get the cut to black, which I think is a fantastic choice because I think you can safely apply that she is going to be able to, but it's nice I think to leave, so, that, right? leave, leave that in the air. Yeah, I think you can give the audience, like, all the clues in the world that she accepted that power, she accepted that responsibility, um, but you have to leave a little bit dangling there of uncertainty, right? And it's just a great job, and I think – they did a great job teasing it in the penultimate episode with Dr. Manhattan literally walking on that same water in the pool in the backyard at night. Um, and it, it's just a really, really good job. And I think also, I believe Will Reeves says in the movie theater, the, the direct line, if you need to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Yeah. Something of like that Friday, I'm paraphrasing. And she's like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But then just 10 minutes later, the audience and her both learn what that means. And we're all like, holy crap. Yeah. Like, it, it really happened. And I mean... We're going to talk about the ideas of a sequel, right? I mean, that has to be a question. Linda Hoff right now is not leaning toward it, but they set up this is the biggest possible dangler of foreshadowing or what could happen in the future uh, for a possible sequel with Regina King, Angela Abar as the new Dr. Manhattan. Or Sister Manhattan, as I like to call her. Or Sister Manhattan, as you like to call her, yeah. Yeah, she's, that's a great dangling plot point, and I think also you brought up the idea of the eggs. Like, they were beating you over the head with the egg imagery the entire oh, yeah. series. The chicken or the egg thing, which one came first? Did they come at the exact same time? Uh, the first time we meet, how about this? The first time we meet Angela Abar in the show, she's cracking an egg to bake something for a class. Yep. You literally get to know her with a breaking of an egg, and then you get to know her at the end when she's eating an egg raw. Yeah, you got those images with the eggs. You got the Clark farm where they were the egg farmers, and then the I think Mrs. Clark drops all the eggs. You mm-hmm. had you had the shots with uh, them using the eggs to make waffles throughout the series. Like there was eggs everywhere. It was just their mind just teeing you up for like the end with the egg 
seeing episode eight and then getting to that point with the eggs. Yeah. So also though, touching on Angela Abar, the idea of hiding in plain sight, I uh, I found this out listening to another Watchmen podcast this morning, and it is unbelievable. Uh, if you look at the original poster for Watchmen, Angela Abar, who's on the poster, is covered in a blue hue of light. They literally tell you at the poster before the show even aired, going, "Hey, by the way." Dr. Manhattan, all that power, she's got it. Yeah. They literally hiding in plain sight. Unbelievable. Awesome. Yeah, I just love that fact. And I think it's great also. The series has great rewatch value because once you know the Manhattan reveal and you know the things that you can go back and look at the clues that are leaving you and start like picking up yes. like oh, yes. like I see what they're doing here. It's like, especially like all those conversations that Angela has with Cal before the reveal, yes. they got a whole new light. Because there was one, I remember, I think like the third or fourth episode where she's trying to get him to like fight with her and he won't. And he won't do it. And like then you sort of realize like, oh, like she know like she knows that he's not gonna have she's trying to bring it out of him and he's not he's not, he's not fighting. Yeah, yeah. He's not fighting. It's it's yeah. That though I so I mentioned the Doctor Manhattan. You can go back and look at all the relationships with Cal. I think also you can go back and probably re listen to and reinterpret a lot of things that Will Reeve says in the first two episodes and every scene is he in because I think there's a lot of kind of hidden messages in there too to Angela about that. Um I think that's something I'm definitely gonna listen to there because the writing in the show was so good, and they did a really good job hiding Cal in plain sight, and I want to go back and dissect everything that these old Watchmen characters had to say because I think everything kind of hints toward this grand finale that was episode 9. Yeah, I, I, remember, I love thinking of that first conversation she has with Will Rees when he's like, I'm Dr. Manhattan. She's like, that's not Dr. Manhattan. He's hiding on Mars. You know, she knows exactly where he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, again, she doesn't know what Will Reeves knows, uh, and it's so cool. Uh, it, Everything came together across so many different timelines, so many different decades spanning apart, right, between what Dr. Manhattan is able to know and do. And everything comes together, again, like I mentioned earlier, to this five-block radius where where Lady True transported everybody. And everything comes down to this moment where Dr. Manhattan sacrifices himself, kind of, and Angela Abar, at the end of it, can become the godlike being uh, that she was in love with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also love that they how they close the loop on the uh, Jug Crawford thing because we actually had the through episode. We have the bit of a paradox there where Angela asked Doctor Manhattan to speak to Will Reeves in the past and ask him how how did he find out about mm-hmm. Jug Crawford being seventh cavalry and then he didn't know. So Angela indirectly is responsible indirectly for, for Jug Jug Crawford. How about Jug Crawford though? That kind of that character arc for him, even though he's dead, is that in the first episode he kind of liked the guy, right? Yeah. Second episode, I believe, is when you find the KKK thing, and you're like, that's not great. Maybe it's not his, though. And then by the end of it, though, you're like, he was definitely part of the 7th Cavalry. He yeah. definitely wasn't a great guy. He was definitely racist. He definitely racist. Yeah. And how that character died in the first episode, and still the show was able to write itself in a direction where you realize by the end that dude was not a good dude, and Angela Abar was being tricked. Yeah, plus you met, like his wife mentions that basically they're, the whole reason he has the good relationship with them is because to get close to Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Because they figured out, like, when that was something that also was a, a good job they solved in the history of, like, how Angela survived the White Knight. And they make a great point that Cal unconsciously, as Diamond had, teleports one of the, the seven Cal members away to Gila Flats, New Mexico, where he first becomes right. Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. So, again, it all comes for us. The writing is just awesome. Guys, the show's great. I don't know how many times we could say it, Mike. The show is really good, and everybody should watch it. Even if you don't know the graphic novel, watch the show because it'll knock your socks off. Yeah, the show itself is great, and it's literally perfectly, like, all— it comes together great. You can tell he's learned from experiences on Lost and the Leftovers or, like, how to bring it all together. And 
Yeah, stuff that we're dropping episode one to Titan five and five to seven and five back to three. It all sort of flowed together nicely. Yeah, I mean, he took two years to write this show, he said in his podcast. Two years to plan this show out together. Uh, and I think it's great because he went into it being, this is the end point. This is it. He's not planning for a second season. He wanted to end the story after nine episodes. And I think that is a fantastic way to tell a story when you know where you want to end. Yeah, it is a fantastic way to tell that story. Speaking of as potential season two, the HBO itself is not billed as a series now. They have viewed it as a season finale because mm-hmm. they are clearly hoping that he is inspired to write another season. But he mentioned a couple of interviews I read, an interesting idea of like, even if, like, for one, he wants a great idea, he doesn't want to do it just for the sake of doing it, which I respect because don't go through the motions like you did in the middle of Lost where you were doing episodes about Jack, finding where Jack tattoos came from. If you have a good story, tell it. But he also brought up this idea of, like, making it kind of an anthology ish, like True Detective or stuff like that, where, like, maybe we don't go to this corner of the Watchmen world. We go to a different part of the world. I 100% agree with that because I think you can't have season two be about the same characters. I think you can have them be in the background. And like tangentially connected, but you have to have a different kind of story. Connect different parts of the Watchmen graphic novel uh, to to this to the new season. Um, I think that's the way you have to do it because as good as Angela Abar was, as good as Regina King was as Angela Abar, imagine if she's just kind of a side piece in the second season, but you still have all the main kind of main courses to eat at with new characters and how they connect to the Watchmen universe and stuff like that. But the overarching umbrella of Angela Abar is possibly being Dr. Manhattan. That's just a nice little like sprinkling of seasoning you could throw on to a new season with different characters and stories. It's yeah. I love I love that idea. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how they pull that off because I think also like with uh, Angela becoming the dot and the sister Manhattan of it all, mm-hmm. like the problem you have with her is obviously now like she's gonna have like godlike abilities. You can't just have her be in every episode because then she can solve every problem basically snapping her fingers so like you want her off to the side somewhere where like new street level characters have to deal with things in the in the universe yeah and the thing is like there's so many different other parts of Watchmen that you can talk about like Night Owl was not in this season yeah and he's arguably the main character of the entire graphic novel but he's not even in this season you have the whole second season you could do based off him and he sold his technology to the fbi right into cops and got the got his owl ship in all the universe but what happened to him did he get arrested right i think that's in the kind of the tangential i think it's i think it's implied he's been arrested yeah it's implied he's been arrested so what happened with that there's definitely a story involved with that, right? Have that connect to this first season. I think there's so many opportunities. We'd love a second season, but we'd love it kind of not being directly about the major characters from this first season. I think the one you could bring over is uh, Lori Blake, just because she was not as involved in the main thread line of this season. Mm-hmm. You could have her sort of be like the main character and then like have the others kind of show up like once in a while. Like maybe like have Vite share a prison cell with Night Owl or something like that or like something like that I think could work. I just think it's kind of hard like to just follow up what you did with oh we're going back to Tulsa again I don't think you can do that yeah no they're, they're definitely would not go back to Tulsa again I don't know where they'd go right where would they go I have no idea do you have a city that they'd like to uh, say season two of Watchmen to take place in I would think okay, it's so US based I would think they would probably go maybe towards like a more of like a major city like maybe like an LA kind of yeah, I mean, L.A., the thing is, I can't help but thinking that this first season of Watchmen played a lot on race, right? Yeah. Played a lot on a ton. If they wanted to carry that over, another – like, L.A. would work because there's uh, the L.A. race riots and everything like yeah. that that happened there. So it is a really good opportunity. I think they'd have to find that cornerstone, that touchstone of culture uh, that would connect a whole entire motif of season two like season one did. And L.A. is a good possibility for it. There's so many – I would – I am all on board with season two if it happens. But with that being said, Mike, I don't need it. Yeah. It's not like I want it. But I don't need it. I still enjoy this first season enough where if it's this is it, 
I'm more than happy to watch again and enjoy it fully. Yeah, I agree with you because like if they gave me another one, cool, I'm there. But like I'm not dying to get another one. Like I'm I'm satisfied with what I got. I'm not like I'm not one of those people who's like, oh my god, you know, need to know. I need to know if her foot touched the water if she became diamond head. No. Like, like we got you don't that. Need to know that we got that answer. Like no. I don't even know who Lube Man is. I mean, the PEPedia files tell you who he is. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, it's got to be the it's Pete, right? No, it's Petey. It's got to be Petey, right? Yeah, they they heavily implied it's they Petey. heavily implied it's Petey. They never said it explicitly though. Yeah. Um, but again, like again, that's how good the show is that there's a random scene with a Lube guy who slides into a sewer grate and then he's never touched upon again. Only in the PEPedia files that are the subject the subjective material, not subjective the. Extra material. Extra material, adjunct material. Bonus material. Bonus material to yeah. the show. Um, the, the show is uh, the show's awesome. Yeah, and John, thanks for all the time on the Watch It fan. I really appreciate it. We will be back again probably later this week. We're going to be talking some Star Wars. Woo! I'm going Thursday night, midnight, yeah. Mike. I'm so excited. I'm going to be so tired on Friday, but yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, look for that one on Sunday in, in your podcast feed. We are going to talk about it on Saturday afternoon. We'll wrap that up and... That'll be a good episode. We were talking. I talked to Pete Considori earlier about sort of resetting the Star Wars universe, heading into it. We can, and he had some good takes. We'll see if any of his predictions came true for the movie, and maybe we'll talk to a little Mandalorian as well. Uh, listen, I'm more than happy to talk about the Mandalorian and all things Baby Yoda because I'm in love. All right. So people want to follow you on social media. <laughs> how can they do that, John? You can follow me at jstanko99 on Twitter. That's where I'm at most. You can read my. Movie and TV takes at stankosstance.wordpress.com. Speaking of Star Wars, I just put out my top 10 favorite Star Wars scenes uh, for myself uh, that I deem iconic in my Star Wars viewing. So that one I just put out today at the day of recording. So follow me on those two platforms. Uh, and Mike, can't thank you enough for having me once again talk about Watchmen. Absolutely. A lot of fun. And be on the lookout, folks. I will be appearing on John's podcast. You will. We will be talking about our top 10 favorite movies of the decade. A rather broad topic. It is rather broad. It will be fun to see where that goes. I know you have some issues on my list. Uh, I do. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned for that, folks. I will share more about that coming up. All right. And that will do it for our special Watchmen episode of the Just and the Suffering podcast. If you want more good stuff like the podcast, including my look over the weekend for you sports fans at how Eli Manning's send-off went with the Giants, check out the blog, justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Simply search for Just End the Suffering on any of those platforms. You can find all our old episodes, including last week's college football playoff recap with Bill Bender of the Sporting News, and more. Be sure to leave your feedback and star ratings as well, and it'll help make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with hashtag SisterManhattan if you made it to the end of this week's show. Again, hashtag SisterManhattan if you made it to the end of the episode. Coming up next this week, our regularly scheduled sports episode. We'll recap the winter meetings with Dan Federico. We'll do week 16 picks with Alex Fasano and more. Until then, I hope you had a better week than Lady True. <laughs> <laughs>